Welcome to The Compass, a weekly podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our series called From Rags to Riches, taken from the pages of the letter to the Ephesians. Now, do you live in Northwest Arkansas and need a church home? Let me take this opportunity to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 1410 North Porter Road of Fayetteville. If you have any questions about the Word or about our ministry here in Fayetteville, let me encourage you to reach out. You can find that information at calvaryfayetteville.com or you can call us at 479-442-4634. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is sharing from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 with a message entitled, Salvation from Start to Finish. Let's listen together. I remember reading years ago about an old Navajo Indian. I don't mean to be offensive by using that term. He was a Native American. But this old Navajo gentleman living in northeast New Mexico. He had become quite rich because uh, oil was found on his property. I don't know if you've ever been in the Four Corners area, but it's uh, of, uh, of that part of New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Arizona, Utah, but it's pretty desolate. But they found oil on his property, and literally overnight he went from being a very poor man who, t- who tended sheep to a very wealthy man. And uh, the local banker where he put all of his money, all of the money that was coming in, this old Navajo gentleman had placed in his local bank, And the banker became familiar with the habits of this old gentleman. Every once in a while, he would come in, he would show up at the bank, and he would say to the banker, grass all gone, sheep all sick, water holes all dry. And the banker knew exactly what he needed. And he carried him, he would take him into the vault, he would set him down at a table, He would take out about four or five bags of silver dollars and he would set it on the table in front of him and say, this is all yours and more. The old gentleman would spend sometimes hours there taking those silver dollars out, counting them, stacking them up in stacks. And after a while, he would leave and on his way out, he would say to the banker, grass all green, sheep all well, Water holes all full again. You see, what he was doing was reviewing his resources. That's all. When life was looking bleak to him, when life looked very unpromising to him, uh, he reviewed his resources, was reminded of what he had, and that encouragement changed his whole perspective. Well, understand that the book of Ephesians is written as a description of our resources in Christ. So if the grass is all gone, and that's the way it looks to you, and the sheep are all sick, and the water holes are all dry, read the book of Ephesians. And you're reminded that you're not poor. You're not living in poverty. You're not living in a place of of lack. But in reality, you have riches 
eternal. You have been blessed. This Navajo gentleman was a rags-to-riches story, and that's why we're calling this series on Ephesians rags-to-riches, because that's exactly what our experience as Christians has been. We once lived in poverty, absolutely destitute spiritually, but now we are the richest of all people, and we have a great future awaiting us. Well, today's text is going to get into uh, reviewing some of our resources, okay? We're going to be uh, talking about what we have because we are Christian people, because not because of anything that we've done to identify us as Christians, but because the Lord has saved our souls. Now, we're going to see in this text, basically, that all three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, has had a part to play in our salvation. Focus here. Focus here. We have been chosen by the Father... We have been redeemed by the Son, and we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Apostle Paul, as only the Apostle Paul can, in verses 3 through verse 14, in the Greek language, one long sentence, one single sentence, verses 3 through 14, 202 words. In the Greek New Testament. He would not have done well in English classes that I had to take had he written that way. But it's an amazing passage. It's an amazing paragraph. It will take us at least two Sundays to get through it. Now, before we read the text, let me define for you what we mean when we talk about salvation. Because people tend to interpret that idea, that concept, in different ways. What is salvation according to the Bible? What does it mean to be saved according to God's Word? Let me give you six very brief, very quick definitions. This may sound familiar. I've shared it with you before. First of all, salvation is atonement, not attainment. Atonement having to do with the blood of Jesus Christ being shed for our sins and applied to our hearts. We are saved by the atoning of the blood of Jesus Christ. We are not saved by some kind of personal attainment, some kind of personal achievement. You cannot do that. Only God can give you salvation You cannot earn salvation. It is atonement, not attainment. Number two, it is a possession, not just a profession. A possession, not just a profession. It's not just saying that you're saved. It's not just walking down an aisle and declaring that you're saved. It's not just making a personal profession as important as that is. It is a personal possession. Do you have eternal life? The Bible talks about those who have, who possess eternal life as a possession, as a gift from God. Number three, it is regeneration, not reformation. 
It is regeneration. What is regeneration? That means to be born again, right? To be born anew. It is to be born again, not just to reform your lives or take up a bunch of good habits and getting rid of your old bad habits. It's not something that you can do by choosing certain behaviors. It is being born from death unto life. He's going to talk about that in Ephesians chapter 2. It is redemption, number four, redemption, not religion. Redemption, to be bought with a price. We're going to encounter that in today's text. It is to be redeemed, to be bought with a price. It is not religion. You can be the most religious person in the world. And many people are doing fanatical things today because of their religion. They are far more religious than you or me, but they're not going to heaven because of their religion. Religion doesn't get you to heaven. Religion will only get you to hell thinking you're okay. It is illumination, not instruction. You can go through all kinds of religious instruction classes. You can be confirmed. You can pass the test of man. But that kind of instruction will not save your soul. I believe in Bible instruction. I believe in being disciples. I believe in growing in Christ. But that's something you can do only after your mind and heart has been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Salvation is illumination. It is spiritual insight. It's when the light comes on, so to speak. And who and what is the light? Well, the gospel is referred to as light, but Jesus is the ultimate light. It's when Jesus makes himself real to you. Number six, in summary, it is not something you do, but it is trusting in the great thing Jesus has already done for you. Okay? It's not something you do. It's not do. It is done. It has already been done, bought and paid for by Jesus. It's putting your faith and trust in him. Does that make sense? Because we could spend a week on each one of those, but I hope that reminder will help just kind of clarify what we're talking about when we talk about salvation. I want to talk to you um, on this topic, or at least my title is, Count Your Many Blessings. And that's what this paragraph is talking about beginning in verse 3. All right? Follow me as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us, in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. And in my opinion, my humble but most accurate opinion, this is perhaps the most majestic couple of paragraphs in all of the Bible. No more inspired than any other verses, but one that speaks of things that are difficult to even imagine, sometimes more difficult to even accept. But once the Holy Spirit of God has made real to you, changes how you view God, changes how you view your life, changes how you view others around you, changes how you view the world, perhaps more than any other passage. This is an amazing passage. Now, in this passage, I think Paul enumerates, now we could organize them differently, but I think very obviously four things, four things that have come our way through Christ, four blessings. We will consider these over the remainder of this Sunday and next Sunday, but I want you to maybe write them down so that you can be looking at them even looking ahead this week. Number one, he chose us. That's described in verses 4 through 6. We're going to talk about that today, and that will be our sole topic, verses 4 through 6. But also, not only did he choose us, he redeemed us. That's verses 7 through 10. He redeemed us. Number three, he gave us an inheritance, an inheritance. That's verses 11 and 12. And then number four, he sealed us with the Spirit. That's verses 13 and 14. He chose us. He redeemed us. He gave us an inheritance. He sealed us with the Spirit. These are the blessings we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. Now he introduces those four blessings with verse 3. Verse 3 is kind of an all-encompassing uh, blessing. The word is eulogia. It's where we get our word eulogy. It's not commemorating those someone who is dead. It is blessing and celebrating someone who is very much alive in this case. Verse 3 said, Blessed be, that means praise be. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. He has shown favor. He has shown kindness and generosity and grace to us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That idea is divine blessings. He has blessed us with every divine blessing in the heavenly places. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. 
the divine spiritual places. It's not just heaven awaiting us. It is the spiritual life we can live in the Lord here and now. It is the spiritual life that is running through our lives, that is right here alongside of us, even as angels move, as the Spirit of God moves in this very place. We are here in an earthly place, but we are here also in the heavenlies. There is a spiritual heavenly place. That's why we can sense the blessing of God. That's why we can sense the Spirit of God. That's why we can be blessed with heavenly blessings, with strength for our lives, even while we're going through physical difficulties in our life. And as we choose to live, not just with one foot in this world, but one foot in that world, we can be as John was in John chapter 1, where he says, I was on the island of Patmos, for my faithfulness to Jesus Christ, I was in exile. But at the same time, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And the same thing is true about you and me. One foot here and one foot there, these heavenly places. He's blessed us. We are blessed people. So let's consider that first point about how he has blessed us in a very specific way. He chose us. Verses 4 through 6, look at it again. Even as He chose us in Him, that's in Christ, the Father chose us in Christ. When did He do that? The Scripture says here, before the foundation of the world, before He created the stars, the planets, the universe, our earth, the moon, before he created anything. In eternity past, before anything existed, before, now follow me now, even before empty space existed, because empty space is something, and he had to create empty space before he could fill it up with the universe. Before there was any of this, when there was God and God alone, the Bible said He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. But what did He choose us to? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, in Jesus Christ. Now, friends, I don't know why. I have laid awake at night trying to understand I don't know why Christian people fight against those three verses with such vehemence and with such tenacity. Why in heaven's name would somebody 
have a problem with the truth that God chose them in eternity past. Some will say, well, people who believe that are just arrogant people. To think that God would choose them and maybe not choose someone else. But my friend, if that causes anyone to be arrogant, you've missed the whole point. If the idea that God chose you before even he created you, if that causes you to feel anything except absolute gratefulness and absolute praise for his name, if it causes you to be anything but humble before the Lord, then you don't understand what this is all about. Understand that it is a, it is a wonderful truth. It is a glorious truth. It is the grace of God that he would choose anyone, let alone you or me. Now look at your neighbor and say, Amen. <laughs> That's just the truth. It says he chose us. The word here in the Greek language, let me give you an understanding of it. It means to pick out, to choose and select. It means to choose out the recipients to whom he is going to show special favor and privilege. I'm going to tell you, that is so offensive to some people that churches have split over the preaching of that truth and the teaching of it. Can I say to you that we have had some people leave this church and seek fellowship elsewhere because I would dare to even preach or bring this topic up. He chose us. The scripture says that. We could ignore it, but it wouldn't change it. We could skim over it, but it wouldn't do away with it. This is God's word to us. He chose us. Why did he choose you? I don't know. Why did he choose me? That's even a bigger mystery to me. I don't have a clue about that. But it said that the Father chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. But he didn't just choose us for choosing us sake. He chose us for something. He chose us towards something that we should be holy and blameless. That doesn't mean perfect. We would never be perfect in this life. But it means that we would be trusting in the holiness of God, trusting in his righteousness, not our own, and that we would, with his strength, be living as closely as we could be to the truth of his word, enough so that the world cannot constantly find a reason to blame us for our choices. Now, I'm going to tell you, Americans have more problem with this truth than any other people in the world. Did you know that? I haven't traveled a lot of places, 
But I've traveled uh, and seen a good part of the country of Mexico and some Central American countries and some South American countries, spending sometimes weeks in those countries. I've traveled uh, to Southeast Asia, to the Philippines and Japan and, and Taiwan and places like that, to the Middle East. And when I encounter believers in those places, I never find resistance or offense to the idea of God's sovereign grace and God's sovereign choice of lost people to salvation. But when it's brought up here in the States, there is almost always a pushback to this idea. Now, why would that be? I have some ideas. I think primarily it is because we as Americans have a sense of rugged independence and individuality about who we are. This is perhaps the, the greatest country as far as freedom anywhere in the world. And we often celebrate the rugged individualism and the rugged independence and the strong will of men and women that, that conquered this country, so to speak, who, who settled this country and, and who tamed this country. And, and oftentimes we are cut out of some of that cloth. If you don't believe that's true, live in Texas for just a little while. I love Texas. Well, now, let me tell you. Now, let me, let me qualify. I love Texas, but I hate the Texas Longhorns. Is that okay? I grew up hating those people and those teams. You know, when you're in Arkansas and you're in the old Southwest Conference and every other school in the conference is from Texas, you really develop a complex. And I grew up coming to these games. I was at the great shootout December 6, 1969, sitting in the stands, looking directly across at the governor and the president. And we got cheated. I still tell you that our man was clipped on that long run for a, a touchdown that, that James Street made, and it should have been called back. We beat them from one end of the field to the other, except the scoreboard. Dead gummit, that's, that was not in the sermon notes here. Now, where was I? I love Texas. But I'm going to tell you, they are the most independent, the most headstrong. Did you know they still have in their constitution in Texas that if they choose to do so, they can still secede from the Union? And there are those that wish they would. There's some of us that wish they would. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's a joke. But what I'm saying to you is, as Americans, we have always been very strong, proud, self-determining people. And I want to tell you that growing up that way, even when you don't recognize it and realize it, it affects how you view things spiritually. The church being the community and the communion of saints you go to churches today, and people are looking for churches where they can be their own individual, isolated person that does not have to depend on anybody else. People change churches like they change shoes. 
They just go from this one to that one. They don't really ever want to become personally responsible for or to anybody else. Some refuse to ever join a church because they want to maintain their individualism, their personal self-determination. And I'm going to tell you that will affect how you view the Scriptures. If nothing else, when it comes to salvation, we at least want to be able to claim that we made the choice for God. And I want to say to you, nobody will ever get to heaven without making a choice for God. But what I'm saying to you is, before you ever thought or knew anything about God or ever thought anything at all or were even born, God had already thought of you and God had already chosen you and God had already prepared a place in heaven for you. God is previous in all of this matter of his choosing. And it's amazing to me also that we have difficulty with the idea of God's choosing. Do you have a problem with the whole truth that God called Abram out of her of the Chaldees and made him Abraham? Does it offend you that God chose Abraham? Or that he chose Isaac or Jacob, the patriarchs? No, that doesn't offend you. You accept that as Bible truth. Does it offend you that God chose Moses and his brother Aaron to lead the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage through the uh, wilderness to the promised land? No, that doesn't offend you. Does it offend you that when Moses died, God chose Joshua to take his place and to lead the children of Israel into the promised land and to conquer it? I've never heard anyone that was offended over God's choice of Joshua. Does it ever offend you that God chose David, the king after his own heart? That he chose Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and most of all, Habakkuk? Does it offend you that God chose these prophets? It doesn't offend you. You've never thought twice about that. Was it his right to choose Peter, James, John, Thaddeus, even Judas, and the rest? Does that offend you in any way? No, that was his prerogative, right? Amen? Does it offend you that he chose Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles? You better not be offended by that. You ought to be thankful for that because that's how the gospel got to you and me, folks. Well, if it doesn't offend us that God chose all these people for his purposes and to be his people and to be his representatives in the world, in the Old Testament, that he chose the Jewish nation. That's never offended any of us. Why then should it offend anybody today to say that before you could ever choose him, he had to choose you? You're just in a long line of those people God determined in eternity past would be his people in this world. R.C. Sproul says this, All Christians affirm divine election because there is no escaping the Bible's many references to God's choice of a people for himself. You can't argue with it. God's been choosing people from the time he created Adam and Eve. He will continue to choose people till the end of time. And he's done this in eternity past. He'll bring it to pass in here in time and space. Dear friends, rather than offending the child of God, God's election, God's 
choice, God's predestination ought to warm our hearts. It ought to bless our lives and strengthen our resolve to live and move as his people in this world. That is such a profound statement. I'm going to read it again. Dear friends, rather than offending the child of God, God's election ought to warm our hearts, bless our lives, and strengthen our resolve to live and move as His people in this world. Now, if you want someone uh, to be identified as the author of that quote, it was me. All right. He chose us, number two, he predestined us. That's what it says in verse 5. Did you see that? Even as he, this verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption. So he not only chose us, he predestined us. Choosing means that in his sovereignty, he made a choice. He selected. What does predestination mean? This word predestined. It means to limit or mark out beforehand. To design or ordain beforehand. Imagine if you will. If you want to get an idea of what this looks like. Imagine, if you will, a piece of property that has a lot of trees on it. And there's a plan to build a home there. Or a bigger piece of land to build some other kind of structure there. But you want to keep as many of the trees as you can. So what does the person, what does the developer, what does the designer do? He goes out there and he takes some colored ribbon and he puts that around certain trees and ties it and he selects this one then he selects this one and then he selects this one. he's marking them out so that when those who do the groundwork come along to cut out all the brush they know that everything else that has not been marked out by the one in charge everything else gets cleared away everything else gets cut down he chose us, and then he went a step further. He marked us out as belonging to himself. And he did this beforehand. He went ahead and marked us. Chapter 8 of the book of Romans speaks about this in an amazing way. Would you turn over there in your Bibles, please, if you have them handy? Romans chapter 8. This is a great chapter, and you love it especially the first verse that I'm going to read. But to read the first verse without the two or three verses that follow it is a, is a tragic, tragic mistake. Do you know what Romans 8, 28 says? For all things, what? Work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. All things work together for good. Let me say something about that, by the way. When it talks about work together for good, in the Greek it's the word synergeo, and it's where we get our word synergy. Do you understand the idea of synergy? Synergy is when you take two things and you bring them together and the results multiply. 
they multiply. I could tell you a story about my wife and medication. But I won't do that. <laughs> but sometimes you don't mix medications, right? Because you get not only what this one does and what this one does, but when you bring them together, a synergy forms, and the result is, and Brother Stephen Avis could give us some advice about this, the result multiplies in the person's life, okay? So he's saying to us, he's not saying, hey, no matter what, God is going to be able to salvage something out of every bad experience you have. Listen, God is not a reactionary. God is not having to come along later to sweep up our messes. God is not somebody that has to somehow put lipstick on a pig to make some mess up of your life look good. God is a God that no matter what you do, no matter what kind of mess you make, no matter what, the good and the bad in your life is going to work together to create even something better. You say, well, does it matter then what I do? Absolutely it does. Because it doesn't promise that there will not be tremendous heartache when you choose to go the other way. But it just means that you're not going to throw a curve to God some pitch that He can't hit. He is in charge. And He's large and in charge. And He has the power. Look what it says in Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, I'm going to give you five words that if you underline in your Bibles, underline them. If not, write them down. Verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, take note of the word foreknew. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Mark the word predestined. Predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Mark the word called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Mark the word justified. That's number four. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified. Now notice, every one of those five words is in what tense? Past tense. Already done. Already done. Already done. Accomplished. Achieved. He foreknew. He predestined. He called, he justified, he glorified. One author says, this is like a beautiful strand of pearls. Each one a beautiful jewel of its own. He foreknew. That means to appoint as the subject for future privileges. God's foreknowledge. He predestined. We already talked about that. He marked us out ahead of time. Then he called. It is a call to participate in the privilege of the gospel. 
You and I experience that in time and space in our lives as God calls us to salvation, as God calls us to himself. And those whom he called, he also justified. That means he declared as innocent, even though we were guilty of great sin and great wrongdoing. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In him, in the heavenly places, we are already glorified. Now, it's time for me to start drawing this to a close, but I would be remiss if I didn't absolutely pop at least one balloon that you have, okay? And I'm going to do that right now. We need to dispel a myth because this myth is not the truth. It has not come from God's Word. It is of the devil. Oftentimes, you've heard it said, and you believe, just like I used to, just like I used to, that when it says that God foreknew us, that his foreknowledge worked like this. Follow me now. Follow me here. That his foreknowledge worked like this. That God in his godly ability, his omniscience, his all-knowingness, his ability, that he looked ahead in time that he looked ahead in time to see who would say yes to him, who would respond in the affirmative to the gospel, and those are the ones that he chose. May I tell you that that myth belongs in the collection of doctrine of devils. It's not the truth for several reasons several reasons. One of which, God doesn't live as a slave to time and space to have to look ahead in time to figure anything out. Now that's the first and foremost, that's the truth. But let me ask you two questions about that idea. If you're hold to that idea and you still maybe want to hold on to it as your understanding of his foreknowledge and his predestination and his election that he elects and predestines those who he sees will say yes to him. Here's my question. That day when God looked ahead in time, according to your belief, that day that he looked ahead to see, did God learn something on that day that he did not know before? Did the omniscient all-seeing, all-knowing, omnipotent God of heaven have to look into the future like some kind of witch with a crystal ball, some kind of fortune teller, to figure out what was going to happen so he could determine what his choices were going to be. I'm going to tell you, if that's your idea of God, I want nothing to do with your God. Our God is not the God of modern man's making that is trying to figure things out as he goes along. That can be manipulated. That can be controlled. He didn't ever learn anything. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He knows it all. He does not have to look ahead to see what you were going to do for him to decide what he was going to do. Okay? 
That's one reason why that doesn't work. There's another reason why is it doesn't work. If God does make his choice based upon what he foresees that your choice is going to be, who is actually making the ultimate choice about salvation? Certainly not God. It's you. It's you sitting in God's seat. If his choice is based upon your choice, then he's not really God. He's a poser. He's a fake. He's a charlatan. Let me tell you something, folks. God is either God over all, or he is not God at all. That's just the truth of it. So you say, well, what did my choice have to do with it then? I don't understand this idea that God chose me and it seems like I'm just a robot and then I, that I chose him because he chose me and I didn't have any choice. I didn't say I could explain it. I didn't say that this puny little brain of mine could comprehend it. I'm just saying there are some things that are a certain way and we'll never understand it till we have the mind of Christ till we are in the presence of the Lord suffice it to say this statement is true it'll be on the screen there will be no one in heaven that God did not sovereignly choose in eternity past at the same time there will be no one in heaven that did not choose to believe and follow Christ in this life you say well I can't resolve those two well neither can I but the Bible teaches both so we appeal to you will you give your heart and life to Jesus Christ if you've never done that will you do that today will you do that today as we sit here in this place the choice is yours the choice is yours if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, will you do that today? Will you do that? There's never been anyone that wanted to be saved that God had not already chosen to be saved. Likewise, there's no one that God has chosen that's not going to ultimately be saved in this life. Well, he chose us. He predestined us. And what did he predestine us to? He predestined us to adoption. He adopted us. He adopted us. That means to be placed in the condition and the position of a son. In Christ, we can be born again, born into his family, but we're also adopted into his family. We are both his by the new birth, but also his by adoption. There's a lot of things that come into this whole idea of adoption. We'll just let that go for today. Someone has said, try to explain election, and you may lose your mind. But try to explain it away, you may very well lose your soul. Did you get that? Try to understand it and explain it, you may lose your mind. 
but try to explain it away, you're likely to lose your soul. Rather than offending the child of God, God's election ought to warm our hearts, bless our lives, and strengthen our resolve to live, to live and move confidently in this world as his people. Amen? Amen. All right, we'll continue this next week with these treasures we have in Christ. He not only chose us, but he redeems us. He gives us an inheritance. He seals us with the Spirit. In the meantime, as we prepare to leave this place today, let's leave here counting our blessings. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings. Every doubt will fly. You will keep singing as the days go by. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings, angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, for this marvelous passage of Scripture that Paul passes on, writes to the Ephesians. Father, we know that though he wrote it down, though he sent it, it came from you. It came from your heart. It came from your mind. And it came not to just them living 2,000 years ago. It came to us as well. Father, we thank you for these truths. Help us to live in the light of these truths as your people. And if there's someone here that's never trusted you as Savior, before the sun sets today, would you burden their hearts so deeply? Would you call them to yourself so lovingly that they will not resist any longer your invitation, but will say yes to your wonderful choice of them? I pray and ask this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.